So, uh, a few few years ago, I was having coffee with a friend who is not a Christian. He would call himself an, an atheist. And at some point, our conversation turned to the subject of death. And my friend said, with real frustration in his voice, I don't like the way that some people accept death. They say things like, oh, it's just a part of life. It's normal. And he said, I want to say to people, no, death is a bad thing. We have to fight against it. You know, if humans just tried hard enough, if we put our heads together and focused on scientific research, we could overcome this problem. We could, we could eliminate death. Now, I was and still am very skeptical uh, that science has the capacity to conquer our death, our death problem. I'm, uh, I don't want to be too pessimistic about that. Um, I think it can probably uh, lengthen our lifespans, but conquering death entirely, um, I don't think so. But I share my friend's attitude towards death. I hate death. Death makes me angry. It makes me sad. And I think that those reactions are very appropriate responses to death. Because death is a curse. It's a, it's a force that cuts us off from our bodies, from our families, from our friends, from our work. And Jesus didn't like death either. In one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, John 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus. And do you remember what he does? He weeps before, before he raises him from the dead. He does do that, which does prove also that he hates death. But he, he weeps. He cries. He laments. From our human vantage point, death makes life tragic. Because it ensures that every good thing in our lives eventually ends. The comedian Louis C.K. has a bit that emphasizes this point. Uh, Louis is a single man, divorced, 40-something. And he says that at this point in his life, if he looks at a woman and she looks back at him and they both smile at each other, he says they basically, basically both decided that something bad is going to happen. Um, he says something like, it's a guarantee I'm cleaning up the language here, but uh, it's a guarantee. Something bad is going to happen. You might have a nice couple of dates, but then she'll stop calling you back, and that'll be bad. Or you'll date for a long time, and then she'll cheat on you, or you'll cheat on her, and that'll be terrible. Or you'll get married, and it won't work out, and you'll get divorced, and you'll have to split your friends and money, and that'll be horrible. Or you'll meet the perfect person who will love you infinitely, and you even argue well, and you grow together, and you have children, and then you get old together, and then she's going to die. And he says, that's the best case scenario, that you're going to lose your best friend. Now, <laughs> that's, that's an awfully sad way of looking at things. But there's truth in what Louis is saying, isn't there? Because whatever relationships we develop in this life, whatever possessions we acquire, eventually death cuts us off. And that's tragic. And not only is it tragic, but it even strikes us as absurd. Uh, When Louis does that bit, it gets a huge laugh from the audience. Why? Because there's something about death, something about this fact that all of us are striving, all of our striving eventually ends this way. Uh, that just seems ridiculous to us. 
And I find that very interesting because death is a very natural thing, isn't it? It's very natural. Why would we find something so natural so ridiculous? And I think Ecclesiastes 3.11 gives us an answer. It says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, we are born longing for more than this world can give us. We long not just for earthly life, but for eternal life. And so when the natural world doesn't provide us with eternal life, it feels wrong. It feels absurd. And so when Louis calls people's attention to that fact, they laugh. Because it's a sign. Eternity is in their hearts. More often, though, the disconnect between what's in our hearts and what the world offers leads not to laughter, but to sadness. Uh, To feel what I would call a holy ache. There's a poem by Robert Frost that I think captures this holy ache very well. Uh, It says, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaves the flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Nothing gold can stay. It's a beautiful way of expressing that old saying, all good things come to an end. And of course, that includes our own lives, right? No matter how golden they may be. It also includes everything else in creation. Scientists claim that in about five billion years, even our sun is going to die. And I don't really understand this stuff, uh, but they say that the core of the sun will run out of hydrogen and then helium, and when it does, the core will contract and the outer layers will cool, and then nothing is going to live on Earth anymore. Nothing gold can stay, not even the sun. And it's as Paul says in Romans 8.21, the whole creation is in bondage to decay. And yet, we ache for more. We ache for more than tragedy. We ache for more than absurdity. We ache for abundant, everlasting life. And so this raises the question, is life really tragic? Is it really absurd? Are all of us just working and striving and sweating and bleeding our way towards nothingness? Or is it possible that the longing in our hearts will be fulfilled? Well, this day, Easter, is the day when we declare joyfully that it is possible for that longing to be fulfilled. Because, to use Frost's language, something gold stayed and has stayed and will continue to stay. And that something is someone, Jesus Christ, crucified but risen. On that eastern morning long ago, a man who had been crucified came back from the dead. And why does that matter for us? Well, it matters because this same man also promised, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, 
then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So what is Paul saying here? Well, just in case there's any confusion, that phrase, fallen asleep, is a euphemism for death. It's a polite way of saying those who have died. It's kind of like saying those who have passed away. So Paul describes Christ as the first fruits of those who have died. So what are these first fruits? Well, the Jews had a practice that had been instituted in the Old Testament where before any of the year's grain was harvested, one sheaf of grain was taken to a priest as an offering to the Lord. And it wasn't until that offering was made that the rest of the grain could be harvested. So when Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's saying that Jesus is like the first sheaf of grain that was offered to God. And just as that first sheaf of grain was a precursor to a huge harvest of grain, so also the resurrection of Jesus is a precursor to a huge harvest of resurrection among those who have died. So Jesus isn't the only one who's going to be resurrected. Now you might say, well... Hold on a second here. It's been almost 2,000 years since the first fruits. Where's the rest of the harvest? Why aren't other people coming back from the dead? And Paul's answer is that it hasn't happened yet because it's not time. Simple answer, but Paul says, But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So, a massive harvest of resurrection is coming, Paul says, but not until Christ comes a second time. When he returns, those who belong to him will be raised just as he was. So, right now, you could say we're in an in-between time. Um, The promise that life does not have to be ultimately tragic or absurd has been made, but we're still waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And in the meantime our hope and confidence that it will be fulfilled comes from Easter morning. It comes from the empty tomb. So let's take a look at the story of that morning. As told by Luke, uh, this is Luke 24, 1 through 12. Luke 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told them to the apostles, who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So Jesus had been crucified on Friday, and everyone was assuming that his story was over. 
Everyone was assuming that Jesus must have been in bondage to decay, just like everyone else, just like everything else, and that the crucifixion had brought that on, brought that decay on. People live, people die, that's that. Same with Jesus. But when the women come to the tomb expecting to find that decaying body, it's not there. And instead they find two angels who declare Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive, they said. Something gold has stayed. But when the women go to tell the disciples, they don't believe them. It says that their words seem to them like nonsense. Don't be ridiculous. People don't come back from the dead. We all know, like Frost said, nothing gold can stay. Now, the disciples' reaction here, that's the same one that many people have today, right? And maybe you've had the experience of trying to share the gospel with somebody, and they've said, that's a fairy tale. I know I've had that happen to me. And maybe you're wondering yourself if it's just a fairy tale. I've had times in my life where I've asked myself that question. Is this just nonsense? Is this just a fairy tale? And if you're feeling that way, the good news is you're, you're in good company because the disciples felt that way on that first Easter. And they went on to start the church, so there's hope. Um, but what changed their minds? That's the question that I want to wrestle with for the rest of this afternoon. What made them go from unbelief to faith? So to find out, we're going to continue the story, uh, jumping ahead to Luke 24, 26 through 53. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Okay, so in this passage, the disciples move from thinking that the resurrection is nonsense to worshipping the risen Christ and celebrating with great joy. And I think that there are two primary things that lead them to do that, that we can see in that passage that we just looked at. And both of these things have relevance for us today. So the first thing, first thing that brings them from unbelief to faith is very obvious, it's very simple. It's that the disciples encounter the risen Jesus. They actually see him, right? When Peter showed up at the tomb earlier, Jesus wasn't there. But now, 
he and the rest of the disciples are seeing Jesus in the flesh, right in front of them, eating a piece of fish. Now, you might wonder, why of all the things that this account could record, does it bother to say that Jesus ate a piece of fish? Like, there had to be so many other things that happened. What is the big deal about this? And the reason most commentators say is that it's, it's because it's a way that Jesus is proving that he's not a ghost. Um, the risen Jesus is not some kind of apparition that doesn't have physical mass. He's not a hologram like Obi-Wan in Star Wars. Uh, he's not just a resurrected mind, but he's a resurrected body. So he can take a piece of fish, chew it, taste it, swallow it. He's physical. And this is really important for us to recognize Because the hope that we have through Jesus is not that we're going to have eternal life in some sort of floaty, ethereal realm. Right? Eternal life is going to be a life that has mass and weight. We're going to be able to taste and touch and see and hear and smell. Which I think is really cool because I'm not that attracted to like some sort of floaty netherworld, you know? Like, I like, I like the real, the real world. But anyway, getting back to the main point. The disciples change their minds because they encounter the risen Jesus. So how does that help us if we're struggling with belief, right? Because I don't think any of us here can say that we've actually, like, put our hands in the, in the nail marks in Jesus' hands, right? And like the text tells us, it says Jesus ascended to heaven. So his resurrected body isn't still walking around. However, even though we can't touch Jesus' physical body the way the disciples could, we can encounter him in powerful, personal ways. And the way this happens is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in verse 49, Jesus says, I am going to send to you what my Father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, what the Father promised was the Holy Spirit. And so today, we encounter the risen Christ, not through his resurrected body, but through the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's kind of hard to talk about the Holy Spirit without sounding a little mystical and strange. Uh, But to put it simply, the Holy Spirit is the presence that works through the church to give people confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and that he really did rise from the dead. And when we have a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit, we have this deep sense that we know things even though we're not sure how we know them. Does that make sense? We have a sense that we know things, even though we're not sure how, I, how we know them. Now, I realize that might sound like crazy talk. To a lot of people outside the church especially, that sounds like, wow, that, I don't think I like that very much. But consider this as an analogy, okay? If you went outside after the service and the sky looked like this, you might say, as I, as I did when I walked out and this picture was taken and I, and I saw it, wow, that's beautiful. Well, what if I asked you, how do you know that it's beautiful? I'm pretty sure that there are only two possible answers to that question. The first is, basically, well, beauty doesn't ex- actually exist in any meaningful sense. All I'm saying is that I, I like the way it looks. So that's one answer. The second answer is much better, in my opinion. The second answer is, I just know. See, in today's world, 
the post-enlightenment world, people want to deny that there's any way of knowing anything outside of the scientific method. But that's not true. Science is great, but we have to recognize that it has limits. Science can't tell us if something is truly beautiful or truly good or evil because science just doesn't make those kinds of value judgments. And most of us, if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't know how we know the answers that we know to questions about those things. We just know. And similarly, when we encounter the Holy Spirit, there are certain things that we just know. The reality of the risen Christ can become almost as real to us as it was to the disciples in that room that day. And knowing the, ris- the reality of the risen Christ can feel as certain as knowing that the sunset is beautiful. Now, it is possible, I think, for us to talk ourselves out of what we know we know, especially if we think that the only way to know something is through science or observable facts. For example, if you told yourself, I can't believe that this sunset is beautiful unless I can prove its beauty through the scientific method, well, then you'd be forced to be an an agnostic about the beauty of the sunset. Right? Because science just can't prove something like that. Like, science might be able to demonstrate that certain patterns uh, people have a tendency to appreciate, right? Science might even be able to provide uh, some, uh, some evidence that appreciating certain patterns was beneficial to our ancestors' survival. But science isn't capable of saying whether something is truly beautiful, it can't make that judgment. So if you limited your belief in the beauty of the sunset to whether or not it could be proven by science, you'd have to be an agnostic about it. But even as you were identifying as an agnostic, there would still be a part of you that felt, intuitively, deep down, that the sunset really was beautiful. And you'd be suppressing that part of you, but it would still be there. And I think that some of us end up in that situation with Jesus. We've had a personal counter through the power of the Holy Spirit, but because we think knowledge can only come through science and observable facts, we end up doubting. We suppress it. Anyway, the big point that I'm trying to make here is that like the disciples, we need to have a personal encounter with the risen Christ. And the way that we do that today is through encountering the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in a lot of ways. He works through scripture, he works through the church, he works through music, He works through all kinds of things. And when we encounter him, we have this deep sense that Jesus is who he said he was and that he was and is risen. All right, so I said that there were two things that moved the disciples from unbelief to faith. The first was this personal encounter with the risen Christ. The second thing is that they saw the way Christ fulfilled the scriptures. Remember, verse 45 said, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So one of the things that has the greatest power to move us from unbelief to faith is looking at the whole of scripture through the lens of Jesus. Because when we do, we see this incredible tapestry that the scriptures weave that no human being could have ever arranged. All throughout the Old Testament, there, are, there is symbolism, there's prophecy. And when we look at those symbols and prophecies, 
in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they make sense. And there's a remarkable coherence to all of that, that without Jesus just isn't there. Now, if I were to attempt to show all the examples of this, we would be here all week. Uh, But for starters, let's just consider Psalm 22 as one example. Now, Psalm 22 was written centuries before Jesus lived, and yet it is spooky uh, how much it foreshadows Jesus' crucifixion. And this is something that Jesus wants us to recognize. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, on the surface, that, that might just seem like an expression of anguish, which it certainly was. But that's also the first line of Psalm 22. And Jesus knew his Bible very well. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just expressing his anguish. He's also saying, hey, everyone, take note of Psalm 22. So if we go and look at Psalm 22, what do we find? Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have a ton of time, but this part in particular stands out to me. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have, ins- have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So, written hundreds of years before Jesus, Jesus quotes the first line of this psalm, and that's in there, in that psalm. And, I mean, everything in there we see in the crucifixion scene. It's amazing. Um, I am poured out like water. You might remember in one of the Gospel accounts, it describes when they stick the spear in Jesus' side, and it says what looked like water came out of him. Um, uh, my bones are out of joint. I mean, he was beaten very severely, so, I mean, his joints, yeah, he's out of joint. But notice it also says later, I can count all my bones. So specifically making the note that his bones have not been broken into, into more pieces than they were in their original configuration, which is a point that the gospel accounts also make, that usually when somebody was being crucified, at the end they would break, they would break their legs. But they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead when they came to him. Um, uh, his, of course, his hands and his feet have been pierced. Um, it talks about him being dehydrated. He says, I'm thirsty when he's on the cross. All of this here, it's amazing. The dividing the garments and casting lots for clothing. The Gospels all note these things happening. So imagine, you can't arrange this stuff. Like, it's just remarkable that it fits together. Isaiah 53 um, is another incredible prophecy about... Jesus. And if you've never taken the time to read through it, I encourage you to do it. Uh, Go home this evening and have a look at it. It's it's remarkable. If you know about Jesus, when you read Isaiah 53, it's really hard not to see Jesus in what you're reading. In fact, I remember once when I I worked in campus ministry at UConn, just down the road, and uh, a friend and I were having a conversation with a, a student who was Jewish. And uh, this student was a practicing Jew. He wasn't particularly devout, but he was a Jew who who believed in God. 
And he was familiar with Jesus, but he didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as most Jews today do not. And at one point, my my friend said to him, I'm going to read something to you, and I want you to tell me who you think it's talking about. So he opened to Isaiah 53, and he read it. And when he finished, the Jewish student said, well, that was about Jesus, right? And my friend said, well, I certainly think so. Uh, but that's actually from Isaiah. That's, that's from your scriptures. It's not from the New Testament. And the Jewish student was very surprised. Uh, he didn't accept Jesus then and there, but you could tell that he was genuinely impressed. And he should be. We all should be. Because it's amazing the way the scriptures as a whole testify to Jesus. So if you're struggling with unbelief, I would encourage you to spend time in the scriptures. You know, Um, Begin to recognize, study, realize the amazing connections that exist between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The fulfilled prophecies. Jesus calls the disciples' attention to that as a means of belief. And so I think he also calls us to attend to that in order to believe. And the more that you see how all these pieces fit together around Jesus, and the more you learn about that, the more faith-inspiring it is. Jesus is risen. Something gold has stayed. And we can be confident about this because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us and because the scriptures testify in a way that no human being could have arranged. The good news is there is a solution to the problem of death. And life is not ultimately tragic or absurd if our faith is in Jesus. Praise God. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that this story about an empty tomb and about you being risen would not just be a story but it would be something that we experience. I pray that the reality that uh, you have conquered death and that through you we also can experience uh, freedom from death would be something that we know in our bones to be true, God, Uh, something that your Holy Spirit reveals to us. I pray that uh, your word would come alive as we read it and study it, that we would be able to see the ways that your son Jesus is all over it, God. And I pray, Lord, that the power of your resurrection would not just be um, something that gives us hope for the future, but something that we experience here and now in this life, God. I pray that it would be our hope and our strength. We thank you for what you've done, God. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.